Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today, UCLA professor and author of Who's Global Village, Ramesh Srinivasan. At the end of the day, it's just humans that create technology. And if we want technologies to support fundamentally grassroots democratic kind of values, let alone kind of cross-cultural voices that support the sovereignty of those different communities, it's up to us to fight for that world. Ramesh will challenge the underlying assumption that the internet can set everyone free. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Way back in around 1994, back when they called me Cyber Boy because I had written this book, Siberia, that was extolling the virtues of these new hypertext-linked technologies, I got invited to this conference at Harvard. It was the first internet conference before they had even set up the Berkman Center. And they wanted me to be on a panel about cultural imperialism. And I was still pretty young and and relatively unread at the time. And I didn't even really know what cultural imperialism was. But the premise of the panel was that as the net spreads around the world, it will also be spreading American uh, culture and in an imperialist way that will just stamp out all of these other cultures. And that it, it felt really 
patronizing to me. This whole idea that, uh, oh, these poor little Aboriginal people, when they get the net, oh, they're going to get all, you know, runned over by it, or they won't understand these technologies or how to use them. And, you know, so the the whole thing felt, it felt uh, kind of misguided to me. You know, the net certainly seemed new and different, but I felt like the net kind of had its own agenda, its own hypertexty, connective agenda, that it was, you know, wiring up human beings into this great Gaian global brain. And it just happened to be doing it to us in America before it did it to the rest of the world. It was sort of invented, it felt like it was invented out on the West Coast, and it was starting to connect people as it moved east, and it would just connect everybody, and we'd all become part of this thing. But what I hadn't really seen at the time as a young cyber enthusiast was the extent to which capitalism was expressing itself through the web. You see, what had happened was those of us who who came into the net when I did, we were following folks like Howard Rheingold and Stuart Brand and John Barlow, the sort of 1960s whole earth hippie generation. And they really did frame and contextualize the net for us almost as this psychedelic wiring of new levels of cultural intimacy. And if anything, government and all those controllers were seen as the enemy. They had arrested lots of hackers. There was something called Operation Sun Devil back then, where these three young high school age hackers got arrested and jailed just for exploring, you know, poking around. They hadn't done anything awful. No no one had been damaged. They were just looking and gaining access to stuff and companies and government were getting scared. So, you know, following the lead of people like John Barlow, the lyricist of The Grateful Dead, who wrote the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, we began to see government as a problem, regulation as a problem, that it was government that would be that cultural imperialist force. So we repressed government. We told government to get away from our net. And what kids like me didn't realize was that if you get rid of government, you create a free play zone for corporations. Government and corporations balance each other out in some respects, like fungus and bacteria. If you if you clear all the bacteria from your body, you're going to get overgrown with fungus. And the same happened as we cleared the net of government. We had an overgrowth of corporatism. And the agendas of capitalism and Western imperialism, really in general, ended up being embedded in the technologies themselves, either in the technologies or the business plans, and then the technologies that were built on top of those business plans. So we ended up turning uh, video chatting and social connectivity into technologies of surveillance and economic extraction. We end up with an internet that encourages dependence on just a few really big, yes, Western corporations. You know, you know how, it's, uh, how it's impossible to fix your car today? You can't just change the points and the plugs. You have to bring it to the dealer. 
who hooks it up to their special authorized dealer-only computer to figure out what's going on and to change some computer setting or replace some component that you can't just buy it. Pep Boys or wherever your local uh, uh, auto mechanic shop is. You depend on the corporation. There's no more stereo repair shops out there. You can't repair a stereo, not unless it's super old, and then good luck finding an old person who can change transistors and tubes and who knows how to solder in a neat way. And that's not just because these technologies demand it. It's because these technologies are being designed to prevent the leak of revenue to local service providers. A large automobile company doesn't want a local service station creating value for himself off their car. They want you to go to their dealer and buy their stuff. So you don't have to be an indigenous aboriginal person to see the way a technology and its business plan can can insinuate itself into your life and change your level of independence, your autonomy, your ability to take care of yourself and your friends and your objects. You know, those intrepid few who dare to bring an Alexa or some other voice-activated technology into their lives they're being colonized. They are. Uh, Early adopters are also early adapters. I applaud their willingness to mutate. I was one of them, but I fear their willingness to do so without any knowledge or control over what these black boxes do or will do someday, with or without their knowledge or consent, could prove to be a problem. My name is JT Rogers, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sylvia Zier, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Pia Mancini from Open Collective, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard D. Bartlett, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, Ramesh Srinivasa, UCLA professor and author of Who's Global Village? The arguments you're making in, in Who's Global Village yeah. reminded me of a, a conversation that I kind of got dragged into and then realized was important way back in the early days of the net, like 1995, 96, right. um, when we started to ask, um, is the internet just is it cultural imperialism by another name? So we used to have the cultural imperialism of American television and Baywatch and American institutions like uh, McDonald's, Coca-Cola. And now is the technology itself, does it, is it embedded with uh, American and Western biases sort of all by itself, even before we get to the age of, of Facebook and surveillance and sort of intentional in, in Western sure, sure, sure. I, I don't think there's any question that any, you know, so if you think about the parallels between like producing stories or content in an earlier kind of media, you know, in an earlier media era where it's like, very obvious what the biases are and the forms of storytelling of Baywatcher or even of like news reporting that comes out of the Western world that kind of talks about people far removed from the Western world. In this case, we have a we have something I would say that's far more um, pernicious and 
far more powerful because what we're actually talking about here when we're talking about this current moment that we're in, you know, and I would say the last five to 10 years definitely of the internet is we're talking about technologies that are supposed to deliver us information that, that pretends to be neutral, right? And so in a sense, it's almost like imagine how science sort of, uh, you know, presents itself as neutral. And in a lot of ways, you can argue that it's definitely more neutral than Baywatch. <laughs> but, you know, it's actually using the kind of language and the processes of science to develop technologies. But, those, but, but, but actually, those processes themselves are creating a world that are reflecting on, on many different levels Western biases and Western agendas. And that can, that can just sort of expand and cover so many different themes. Um, so, you know, the original kind of construction of the ARPANET or the idea of a TCP IP packet switching or, you know, a sort of decentralized network, that in itself is not inherently um, problematic or kind of Western biased. But the idea of using the language of the rhizome or the language of the decentralized network to actually build technologies that push out Western values and Western agendas, that's where the problem is. So it's, it's much easier to see those, those forms of bias when we're looking at the actual content that's being produced. But in this case, we're looking at the ways in which the architecture of network technologies are developed. So that's what I'm very concerned about in this book. Because, you know, in the, uh, certainly in the original dream, we thought that if the network was going to be more like a rhizome, more like a fractal, then, you know, the old butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil or in the aboriginal culture, you know, the aboriginal people once, once connected to AOL, um, (laughs) will get their own chat room to tell their own story. And of course it didn't quite work out that way. No, no, not at all. And of course, you know, even if you think about how those earlier moments of the internet, which you yourself were intimately involved in, in how even, you know, those ideas of the internet were more based on communitarian logics, right? The idea that you had some sort of social contract you entered in when you joined what was mostly a local network. Mm-hmm. Um, and that even when you think about people like John Postel, or you think about um, the the reality that you know commercial transactions were forbidden on this on the internet until mm-hmm. I believe 1995, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you know that seems like a long time ago, but that was actually not a long time ago when we actually look at the the history of the ARPANET, which dates back quite a bit longer than that. I know so, it's funny. I mean, no one reads the user agreements now, but back then, <laughs> you actually saw the screen. There was a user agreement for the internet itself, yeah. and it was the opposite of the current user agreements. It yeah. said that you promised that you were using the internet for research purposes only, that you almost everyone felt a little bit illegitimate on the net. It was if, well, am I really using it for research? You know, is this really count? Because I'm going to, I was even concerned, well, I'm going to write a book for a publisher and I'm going to use the research that I get online. Does that count or does it have to be an academic book? I mean, that's how strict it felt. And it made for a very different kind of a space. I mean, it was really treated like a commons at that point. Exactly. And, and, And that's why you can see, you know, we can critically scrutinize some of the distinctions between the hype at that time versus the reality of how those technologies were instantiated and actually operated upon. But at the same time, we know that 
there was an attempt to be far closer to the idea of a kind of countercultural, communitarian, um, if you will, rhizomatic, mycelian <laughs> sort of idea, not just in terms of the, the network architecture itself, but in terms of the kinds of social and cultural conversations and arrangements associated with that architecture. You know, of course, we also know that, it, that you know, in reality, we're actually telling a mostly Californian story and we're telling mostly a white male Californian story. But at the same time, you know, whether that's true or not, I mean, you know, and I think that is true in a lot of ways. We're talking about people here that did have a sense of integrity and did care about the idea of a commons, of a community. Um, you know, and, and, and now what we've done on so many different levels is we've used the languages of counterculture, um, you know, from rhizome to decentralized network to participation to, you know, global village to community, <laughs> you know, and we're using those languages, but those forms, those, those linguistic signifiers, if you will, are obfuscating the actual practices that are like political and economic and definitely cultural that are behind th those sorts of deployments of technology. Right. So, I mean, my favorite one is, you know, ecosystem, because, you know, these are the, the, the marketplaces that they're, that are set up by these companies or anything but ecosystems. They're extractive yeah. uh, surveillance networks. You know, they're not uh, generative uh, uh, marketplaces. I can't agree more. I mean, data is the oil of the new economy and what turns data into an asset that can be then, you know, transformed into advertising revenue in ways that we as users have no, almost no awareness of is our engagement on those platforms. So what we're doing when we're kind of sharing content in f supposedly free ways is we're monetizing companies that have incredibly problematic labor uh, kinds of ideas as well as ethics of um, tr of transparency and communication with their users right so like again this this kind of d discursive obfuscation or maybe you could just say the branding you know kind of using the language of the brand that's a big part of what's going on here and I think you can tie a lot of this I mean I'm, I'm making like large statements here and this is what I'm working on right now to the more general fail, failure of liberalism, and we, you know, which we see right now in this country and <laughs> in so many parts of the world, but it's actually the um, the hypocrisy of, of of liberal punditry and the hypocrisy of of liberal institutions that you know cut socialists and progressives and and more uh, DIY activists. They cut them at the knees, you know. They cut them out. They cut them out before they could even actually influence these movements, and so their hypocrisy has 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 come home, has come home to roost, and you can see these sort of liberal leaders of Facebook, of Google, being similarly hypocritical in terms of the ways they use language to actually obfuscate what they do, which is a, a you know what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. Right, and the surveillance capitalism is is pernicious on a on a whole lot of levels. I mean, you know, for the the angle that I've been following lately is, you know, the way that, you know, Facebook and other data miners will use our data histories in yeah. order to market futures to us that we 
didn't yet know we were going to live. You know, it's almost the, the object of the game for them is to reduce human spontaneity and make us a more compliant uh, uh, market segment. So, you know, we act more true to our, uh, uh, to our profiles. But, you know, what you're looking at is actually uh, almost more immediately uh, treacherous. You know, the, the, the end-to-end impact of most of these technologies on indigenous peoples, for example, are almost just universally awful. You know, whether it's the resources that are extracted in order to build these things and the people that are enslaved to do that, or the dumping of the toxic remains of either their production or uh, their consumption right back on those same people's lands. Uh, You know, so even just physically, you know, the the impact of these technologies on those people is is awful, much less technologically or culturally. God, it's such a great point. It's like this, the, you know, when you start to look at kind of technology and the internet and its meaning, you can't, despite, you know, the kind of empty metaphors we use that somehow work to kind of confuse people like cloud or, you know, global village or whatever you want to use. It actually, and it's another way of disguising, you know, like you, you just said, it's another way of disguising what's occurring, you know, like on a material and on a geographic level. And on a very physical level, in relation to what's in, in relation to the deployment of these infrastructures around the world. So it's interesting that the story both starts and ends in many cases in Africa, much like the human story in so many ways, right? <laughs> so like, but in this in this case, in a really like plunderous way, in a really wasteful way, in a very toxic way, literally, right? So like that's why I juxtapose in the book stories from, you know, very briefly from the Congo of mining for minerals that, you know, are used in iPhones like Coltan. And then I juxtapose that with, you know, where the, where the digital waste goes, right? And it's, and it's, they're not far from each other. Like, you know, you're thinking about like the Democratic Republic of Congo Mm -hmm. to like West African shores. And both are, you know, the, the junk, the minerals are extracted to produce uh, hardware and other network infrastructures that are built around design models of obsolescence, of planned obsolescence, rather than kind of renewable consciousness or ecological consciousness. And then as we, as our iPhones stop working or we get seduced by the kind of latest and greatest black box of Apple, <laughs> we, we just kind of get rid of them and then they inevitably end up in like, you know, in Ghana, or you know on the on the shores of these countries and and then people are trying to extract metals and uh, minerals back out of these things out of these devices and are are getting cancer so it's like but the the, the dream i mean the dream that that all of us had that was you know sung to us by timothy leary and john barlow and other great progressive lefty tribal uh, uh, internet enthusiasts was, you know, that unlike television, which desensitized us because there was nothing we could do, no way to talk back, that yeah. the internet was wiring us up into a a two-way neural network of a sort where I am you and you are me and we are all together. Yeah. Um, it, we're not getting that. You know, people seem to look at their iPhones. It feels much more opaque than connective if anything it seems to have made it easier to externalize the the uh, noxious 
effects of these things mm-hmm. and to exclude people from our, our social strata than to include them. Without question. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, that those conversations that we're supposed to be having, whether they're just, you know, kind of cybernetic, like you're describing, or more sort of like social spaces of community building, all the content, including us almost doing nothing on those, on those environments, meaning simply browsing or viewing, all of that content is being extracted to support something far more powerful and far more pernicious than the kind of conversational commons, right? Or than the communicative kind of commons that is that it's fetishized to be. What, what it's all doing and, it, and it's all extracting is it's 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 a data a set of data trails that are being monetized for purposes both of commercial gain as well as like political surveillance and as commercial as as the commercial and political worlds increasingly become impossible to distinguish between. Uh, we see a, there's a whole other sort of like, you know, it's not the dark net, but this is a, a dark world, if you will, that is profiting at the expense of, of working class, middle class, you know, community-based technology users to support their own agendas, to support their own aims. And what technologists always say, and it's like so annoying to me, is, oh yeah, this is simply a problem of scale. We'll solve it once we solve the problems of scale and we'll just build another technology to replace the problems created by this technology. But they're not actually thinking about what is the human experience? How are humans using tools to support who they are, their ideas of agency, their voices, right? Like it's always this idea of technology as a surrogate for the human experience. You know, the cybernetic idea like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, the brain works in this way. We're going to build a technology that's just like the brain. But you know mm-hmm. what? If the technology is built just like the brain, but the technology just supports like the agendas of somebody far removed from my own brain, then what is actually happening here? Right. Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing good. And so, you know, I, I, I sort of make the point there's like lots of different layers we can look at this, right, from the kind of mere kind of provision of technology access by kind of corporate forces but also even kind of, I guess one might say, well-meaning NGOs and you yeah, know. the one laptop per child movement <laughs> meant well. Poor little Nicholas Negroponte, <laughs> you know. But here's your laptop. Here's your equivalent of Microsoft Office. Go to it. You know, yeah. we don't see the cultural. Uh, what's the cultural imperialism there? You know, just yeah. learn how to use a damn spreadsheet and you'll be fine. <laughs> it's like constructionism, right? The idea that yeah. you just kind of simply learn by doing. But what are you doing and who prescribes the idea of what you're constructing and who makes decisions around what kind of what are the experiences of interactivity that are actually beneficial to some you know brown kid in Cambodia mm-hmm. right it's like good lord the the level of at the minimum uh, cultural presumption <laughs> is really really troubling so this is why you know I was I was a graduate student at the MIT Media Lab I was one of the people you know young brown guy you know, being being charged with a n- number of other young brown guys to set up these kinds of projects in India to work, you know, to ostensibly support and empower. And, you know, they even use the word liberation technology, <laughs> indigenous people, farmers, you know, these poor people that don't have technology literacy. And, and I got like left left out of the village, you know, I mean, and, and, and that's where my whole career started, because I was like, good Lord, I've taken all these classes in cultural studies and philosophy and kind of radical theory. And then I'm also this like geek 
software and hardware developer, but I'm seeing such a gap, not only in my kind of the intellectual positions and the ethical positions of my coursework, but like in real life, <laughs> you know, in real life, I'm just trying to be a missionary, you know, right. it's, it's, it's just bullshit, you know? Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, whether we realize it or not, I mean, the NGOs, it's not its not a conspiracy so much as just, you know, uh, uh, embedded values, but the NGOs are really there to help uh, all these brown people from around the world get job training to work for, you know, as the long distance players for American corporations. Yeah. So you, you learn the technology in order to be a coder in India for Intel or somebody. Yeah, without question. And you so you, that's exactly it. You see the sort of, again, the presumptions of the other. They can't, you know, they're, they're all going to just come and join our community, which, of, which is, of course, or our global economic system, which is, of course, configured to extract their labor so that we can disproportionately profit from their labor. So you see that in from everything from the one laptop per child, but you see that also with the kind of hype that you see in India. You know, I'm, I'm of Indian descent. Um, like around call centers, you know, which like, can, can you imagine what this does to their fMRI, their like brain cycles as they're awake <laughs> in the middle of the night while we're like complaining about some credit card not giving us enough money back or something like that, you know, I mean, but it's also happening with IT outsourcing. And part of the issue that's occurred is elites in the global south have emerged that have a level of complicity with their kind of global partners in Silicon Valley and in banking systems and so on, um, and that have also branded this sort of IT revolution, you know, to support their own agendas. And a lot of people have bought the hype um, because they see, oh my gosh, there's already like, there's five to 10 billionaires in India already. We can do that too. So that's this, so so that's not it's not really about you know good versus bad technology is technology good technology bad that's not what the book's about the book is about who has power and voice over digital technology I mean the uh, maybe it's pointless to even wonder but I mean where did we where was the wrong turn you know for me it was always I mean the day I realized it was going south was um, the day that Netscape went public because it turns out it was the same day that Jerry Garcia the guitarist yeah. of the Grateful Dead died yeah. and I always thought yeah. oh that's the day that the kind of the 60s communitarian values of the net went away and the idea of just getting to IPO uh, was born yeah yeah I mean it could be that I think I think it's also really interesting to see um, what's happened with the two platforms that have come to dominate our world and the two corporations that have come to dominate our world, at least our world of, uh, in, a, in relation to the internet, specifically Google and Facebook. Those are the two I'm, I'm kind of keeping my eye on right now, you know, each with 1.8 billion users. But like what they, would, what they said and what they did, you know, now 15 years ago, was really different than where they've gone right now, right? You know, sort of like they were seen, you know, Google set itself set itself up as the young, like hackerish upstart that was there to kind of progressively and in a decentralized way liberate information and right. liberate yeah. from Yahoo, which was the big corporate <laughs> player at the time. <laughs> which we see as a much more like ethical company at this yeah. point, perhaps probably most likely because it's not doing well. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like you know, and then you and then you start realizing that these are nothing but like monopolies in the making, right? That are like just gobbling up every other company, including 
you know, think about Facebook's uh, acquisition of WhatsApp fairly recently, right? Or mm-hmm. Instagram. So WhatsApp is, you know, uh, is is we all love WhatsApp because it's encrypted. It's peer to peer encryption. But like, is it encrypted from Facebook if they own it, or is that data retained? You made the great point about the retention of data. And how that actually creates what Judith Butler calls a foreclosure of identity. It's a really mm-hmm. nice term I like because, yeah. like, I get get busted smoking weed when I'm 16, and somehow that's on some you know life insurance application record when I'm like 35 or on a job application, right? It's like that's the retention. But in fa- in the case of like WhatsApp and Facebook or these other kinds of examples, it's the aggregation of data, right? It's like taking something that you do in one part of your life. And connecting it to something that you do in another part of your life. Like when I'm home, I feel like I can be a different person than I am when I'm in the office. There are different kinds of public or social spaces. But when our data trails are constantly being, you know, kind of stripped from us across so many different platforms, and uh, you know, with all the local installation of tracking software on our laptops, on our phones, and so on. The, there's an aggregated sense of self and identity that's being constructed and retained over time. And part of the problem is we have no idea what's being gathered about us. We have no idea what data is being bought and sold about us. And we also have no idea what what forms of identity construction are being algorithmically mediated uh, in terms of how that data is being processed. And you made the really great point earlier that you actually start to become that, right? Because human beings, of course, are influenced by what they see and the information they experience. I mean, I am, you are, everybody is, right? So what happens when we become, uh, I I call it like a recursive identity, like we basically become what our Google search results tell us the world is, right? Like, are there ways out of it? It's our mirror, our search results and our, for a lot of people, our, our Facebook feed, you know, we think of it as pure or generic when it's actually a mirror of uh, yeah. what the algorithm thinks we look like. It's a refracted mirror, right? Something's right. going in and something else is coming out. It's like, the, you know, a, a mirror of narcissus, but it's like what, nar- you know, like I happen to be like an ugly toad. Or I happen to be a narcissist, but what comes back out me is like some ugly toad. <laughs> it makes me wonder, though, if there's a, a spiritual application for this. In other words, if you don't like your Facebook feed, if it's upsetting or angry or your dark fantasies, what about trying to change your online habits to make your Facebook feed reflect the world as you'd like to see it? <laughs> I, I mean, that's definitely like one <laughs> you know, ultimately um, probably failed approach we could take. Not because I don't think that's a great thing to do. And I've recommended that in some of these like, you know, videos I've been doing around Mm -hmm. the book. Like I shot this thing with Fusion around around that very idea. But I mean, ultimately, um, it's it's the demand that we all need to come together and make uh, to these companies to engage in a social contract with us. where they um, realize that we are not gonna, we're not we're not happy with it. We're not gonna take it. So it's it's. But but I think at the same time, I don't think we're anywhere close to that, right? I mean, like people in America didn't really care that we invaded Libya, not to go on a tangent here, or that right. we, or, or for a long time that we invaded Iraq until they realized it was a lie. You know, they they don't they don't they they celebrated when we bombed Syria a couple of weeks ago. Right. It's like people. So what will. So that's the, the question I'm getting at is what will actually make people 
feel like they are threatened in a way where they'll actually push back or fight back as opposed to just, you know, random, random activist academics like me. Well, I mean, I think the, the, you know, if anything made people care about this now, it was the, the recent elections. Yeah. So people see that, oh, maybe it does matter. Maybe they're thinking about it more that, well, other people (laughs) are getting all these weird messages and thinking crazy thoughts and voting crazy votes. Yeah, I've noticed that a little bit. I think I think what people tend to have some concern about is the kind of, you know, and you, you, these terms have become so mainstream, like echo chamber or filter bubble or the fake news thing. I think I think that has created concern for people where they there is a recognition in the United States, and I don't know how global actually this recognition is, but there is some recognition that, uh, that these you know, black box platforms, opaque platforms are not truth telling. But at the same time, you have to couple that with the reality that there's any profound distrust of mainstream institutions. I don't mean just the government, I mean media itself. So when Trump says fake media, it actually reflects a fairly common, I believe, sentiment amongst Americans that don't necessarily see the media as fake, but see the media as biased because of its fragmentation, right, which you've written about into so many different channels that support so many different, not different voices, but more like a set of political economies that are like really centralized. So I, I think I think people are, uh, they recognize that, you know, that Facebook as a, as a source of news is not good enough, but I don't think people really know what else they should or could do. Right. And fake news definitely hurts uh, it's more effective on people in uh, disconnected Western cultures. Yes. You know, in, a, in a certain way, uh, you know, one of your main arguments is that these these uh, technologies and platforms are structured, you know, they're structured around corporate capitalism, which is ultimately very brittle, yeah. at least culturally and socially. Yeah. So if we're all disconnected and suspicious and maybe good consumers, but... Uh, bad community members, um, <laughs> we're going to be more vulnerable yeah. to the kinds of paranoia that comes through fake news. And it wouldn't work on the very kind of tribal, aboriginal, connected cultures that you're saying are being ignored by this technology in the first place. Without question, because the way in which knowledge is constructed, communicated, and circulated in those sorts of communities is not reliant on atomizing black box technology, right? It's more about like who you are in a community, like who you are in a community partly determines what you know and who you interact with. I mean, it's not quite as simple as that, but it's also, it's also about the idea that how people know and how they express what they know defies the kind of individual centric, you know, kind of one person per laptop each person kind of being a a heroic freedom-seeking individual, like those sorts of precepts which date back to, you know, theories of the enlightenment, right? The individual versus the superstructure, the state. Those sorts of like binaries are are completely challenged by the way in which the communities that I work with themselves experience the world. There's something, so, you know, in Western liberal theory or Western political philosophy, we always see the individual 
relative to the state or the empire, if you will. But in these kinds of communities, these non-Western communities I work with, who, by the way, are the main targets for internet expansion and access by Facebook and Google, you know, with their like new programs to try to spread mm -hmm. internet, spread internet access to their tiered internet. Those communities introduce the layer of cultural and communal into that environment, if that makes any sense. So what, what I mean is, it's not just the individual or like some sort of like distant institution or empire. It's more like my relationships. It's about relationality in communities. And so I tell stories of what technologies may look like and how they may support those sorts of practices. You know, I don't want to over homogenize non-Western cultures, which by the way, reflect <laughs> like, you know, over about 6 billion people in the world out of 7 billion. But, uh, but at the same time, I'm get what I'm getting at is there are a set of practices and ways of knowing, which I call ontologies in the book that defy this kind of Western liberal trap. And now that Google is after them, what should they do? On the one hand, if they don't embrace the technologies and they can't participate as full-fledged members of the global village, as it were, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're you know, that we want to give them, you know, we want universal access, you know, it, otherwise there's a digital divide and God, they're being yeah. oppressed. Yeah. So we just get them online, then everything will be okay, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, right, right. It's um, <laughs> As my friend Adam Fish uh, likes to say, and I have a book coming out with him called After the Internet, which is kind of looking at hacking and dark nets and stuff like that as well, and the pirate party in Iceland. He, he's like, how do you protest an internet-providing drone that's in, this, in the stratosphere or in the sky? Like, how do you protest that? So, yeah, I mean, those those communities um, need to lobby. And it's, it's, generally speaking, another probably failed project. I know I sound so depressed about things, but actually the book is not. But those communities need to lobby any institutions they can, including their governments, which are totally complicit in general with these, these sorts of issues, to try to uh, ask for alternatives, right? Um, and and one way in which people are avoiding some of these kind of drone or, you know, from the sky, from the cloud, internet corporate projects is by, uh, is the massive expansion in, in mobile telephony access. And also like 3G, mainly 3G, not 4G or, or LTE, but 3G access is expanding. So the the internet is not open uh, even in those cases but it's not this kind of tiered internet you know kind of this apparition of the internet that facebook and google are going to provide and you may also know that you know facebook for example got kicked out facebook's free basics program which is its drone providing program it got kicked out of india that was mainly because in my experience it was mainly because the indian government wanted to support their own billionaires uh with the reliance corporation but, um, Ooh, they, have, they have their own drone program. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They have their own programs. Absolutely. So what do you see? I mean, talking about green shoots, you know, here we are on Team Human. I mean, a lot of us are, are aware, although now more aware, of the way that the, the spread of these technologies and the corporations behind them, uh, uh, you know, reduce human autonomy and agency, and particularly for those who aren't already enlisted in the the whatever this this economic arms race that we're in um what 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 are the ways i mean either to you know reverse this trend yeah uh resist it or develop alternatives yeah 
So this is a multi-tiered or multi-pronged strategy that we have to take, and it's not a one-size-fits-all, but here's like some components of it. You mentioned one, which is really important, and it's just one part of it, um, which is like developing a kind of critical literacy of technology. So that doesn't mean, hey, I now know how to use Google, <laughs> or I know how to hit like, you know, on Facebook. It means understanding the kinds of, you know, at least on a heuristic level or on a on a kind of descriptive level, what's going on and why, and playing with that with these platforms, right? So just tweaking different kinds of uses of these technologies to to try to get a sense of how they're essentially gaming you. So that's one. Two, I do believe very much still in encryption. I mean, uh, my friend Finn Brunton, I bet you know him, was, was actually, I did an event with him at City Lights in uh, San Francisco. And he was like, trying to deal with encryption is like trying to fix a satellite from Earth. And I was like, yeah. But at the same time, it's important that we know, we try to get a sense as, as, as humans, as users of technology, in what cases do we want to use what types of encryption? Knowing fully well, again, that we might be okay with giving some data to those who are surveying us. And in other cases, we want to be very careful about what we provide to whom. And so that's important. And, you know, there's a whole range of different kinds of things we can do with encryption. But generally speaking, that's not been widely embraced because most of those platforms are not as easy to use and they're not as scalable, right? So I was a Tor, active mm -hmm. Tor user for a while, but it became very difficult for me to do a lot of the things I wanted to do on Tor. So this is, this is, a, this is a problem, but that's the second thing we can do. A third thing we can do is do all we can to push, 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 and criticize, criticize, criticize in a hopefully loving way <laughs> uh, these mm -hmm. companies and the people we know within these companies. Like I, I have tons of classmates from my undergrad at Stanford studying engineering and even the Media Lab at MIT who are working in these companies. Let's appeal to them and say, hey, you know, you can, there are some very simple things you can do to at least be a little more socially responsible and maybe even give examples of companies that, relatively speaking, are more socially responsible that we can engage with. But then there's the last idea I have, which is the most radical idea, and it's the one that I'm actually working on right now. <laughs> and that's to actually splinter internet networks in every way we can, to fragment them. And I'm, I'm working on, a, on writing about a project, which is basically DIY, community-based, open-source telephony that's being built and engineered by indigenous communities all over um, Zapotec and Mixtec community areas of southern Mexico. Mm. You might have heard about this. This project called Rizomatica, so playing with huh. the term rhizome. Yeah. They're super cool people who are running this. And what they're doing is they're trying to engineer their own technology collectives, right? So like these people in these communities, with the help of these activists, are building their own DIY community cell phone networks. That they are they own. like sort of mesh mesh networking or partly mesh in terms of the local connectivity, but partly tethering it to voice over IP right. uh, for their long distance calls, which of course opens them back up to the NSA surveillance net, which is right. you know well, and Google and so on, you know. <laughs> so they're doing the best they well, can. Well, if it's if you're not being surveilled, do you really exist? <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm 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 friends with um with Emery Douglas, who is you know the minister of culture. He's like I think 80 now for the Black Panthers, and and what he tells me is like, hey Ramesh, I use Facebook because I want them to hear what I have to say. 
So mm -hmm. I was like, you know, he's like, I'm 80. I don't care. You know, it's like, that's the way, that's the way it's going to go. So, you know, there might be some room for that kind of, um, for, for that as well. But, you know, what are the cases in which communities can take back network technologies like mesh networks, like, you know, kind of open source telephony and then support their own communities in those ways. And so like the examples I tell, talk about in the book are all examples where communities are like, hey, there is some meaning for digital network technology in our lives, but only in these ways, in these contexts. And these are the values that we want to be associated with the project. And so the book right. is, the book's just full of stories where I'm like this kind of, you know, geek designer guy who is totally like politically wanting to be in, be of service to these communities that have invited me. And I just set up stuff with them and write about right. the process of setting things up. I guess the idea being that we humans can do technology on our own terms. Yes. And then if the internet really wants us badly enough, you know, we can connect to them too. Yeah. But we've already established our own tide pool, if you will, our yeah. own uh, uh, more kind of grounded, uh, you know, human-based value system that's intact before it uh, before it connects rather than just being colonized by the internet as it already exists exactly and even and, and specifically the forces that drive the kind of political and economic value that's extracted out of the internet which is you know western surveillance you know chinese surveillance russian hackers and 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 mega mega behemoth uh, techno capitalist corporations and, you know, it's important to note that even in the case of the Democrats, there was a revolving door between um, Google employees and the, the, you know, the State Department and Obama's administration. Like, I don't mind saying this stuff. Google executives were moved into uh, Obama's tech advisory team. You know, they're extremely smart and they have a lot to say. But, you know, it's not surprising that that the government is very aligned with Google or, you know, um, People like Jared Cohen, who you probably know, um, mm -hmm. you know, who wrote that book with Eric Schmidt, that like ridiculous book um, yeah. that I that I go after, go to town on in chapter five of the book. Again, like the head of Google Ideas, tech is going to counter extremism, and you know, and and Cohen before he worked at Google was uh, was one of the you know high level people in in Hillary Clinton's uh, State Department. So, you well, know, yeah, and Eric Schmidt was essentially NSA. Totally. He went to Google, totally. So. so everybody wants to talk crap about Peter Thiel. And there's every reason to do that because it's 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 scary and monstrous. But it's but let's let's this is why liberalism failed. Right. It's like because liberalism didn't care about uh, middle and working class people and liberalism as instantiated via technology has 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 done the same thing that uh, that allowed, uh, in my mind, uh, Trump to, you know, manipulate his way to the presidency. Right. And it's very hard to see it as something as other than an indictment of tech, but it's really not. You know, yeah. people keep thinking, oh, Doug, you used to write so glowingly about technology <laughs> in the early 90s. Why do you hate technology today? It's like, I can hate Facebook's business plan without yeah. hating, you know, uh, packet switching. Exactly. <laughs> you <know>? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> packet switching. There's really nothing wrong with packet switching in a nutshell. In fact, it's a brilliant invention. It's a, it's a brilliant innovation. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, 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 it's really like, 
and, and, and it's this, this point, I keep trying to figure out the right word to describe this with, with the, with the new book I'm working on, but mm-hmm. it's something about the use, it's the use of the language of kind of the radical decentralizing, you know, I, I, I know that you knew Terrence McKenna, like that mm-hmm. kind of language, right? That kind of super hippie counterculture language, the, the obfuscation of the uses of that language to actually support agendas that are like the antithesis of that, right? Good Lord, it's how far can we go where people stop believing that the, in the language and start looking at the kind of material practices and the conditions of inequality that are being generated in the name of that language? Indeed. And, you know, and how can we provide people with ready, fun, accessible alternatives so they can at least, it, it, I mean, right now, uh, as atomized as we are in America, it's very hard for people to really see the value or the even the existence of these other ways of understanding our interrelatedness. Yeah, and one thing we can do, because most of us are more than 15 years old, is just try to like, I know it's hard to remember things that are like in, in relation to the internet that are older than 15 years. We can even try to remember that moment, you know, that that as you mentioned, the Netscape IPO moment, or we can remember the world uh, before that moment. But we could also look at examples that are even in a way kind of concurrent to some of these problems that were emerging of, you know, people like Doug Engelbart and kind of some of the genius ideas he had of thinking about technology in a very collective way, right? Like, you don't, it's not like just one person behind the laptop. It's like a bunch of people in a room that are kind of collectively looking at technology or or interfaces at the same time and playing with each other. Finn made the point that he even developed some sort of uh, haptic interface where people would sit in the lotus position (laughs) while while using like kind of a, a computer terminal. You know, where we go with technology really ultimately is up to us because at the end of the day, it's just humans that create technology and we create technology to reflect our biases. And if we want technologies to support, you know, fundamentally grassroots democratic kind of values, or let alone kind of cross-cultural voices that support the sovereignty of those different communities. It's up to us to fight for that world. Where we're at right now is, you know, troubling, but it doesn't have to be, you know? I mean, we even look throughout history when various companies have kind of transgressed certain boundaries. They've either been reined in or um, they have been, there's been a social movement to try to push back. And, you know, there's a lot of them right now that people need to fight against, (laughs) you know, and it's not just the tech companies, it's so many others. But at the same time, I think people at the very minimum can kind of let Google and Facebook know in whatever ways they can. And the best way is to not use those platforms and figure out ways to, or use them in strategic ways. Um, They can let them know like, hey, we we want you to be more transparent. We want you to be more in conversation with us. And there are some good people who work at those companies Let's see if we can influence them. I think we can, you know, or we better, at least we better try. We better try, right? <laughs> That's, <laughs> we, we better try. And at the same time, you know, we can pay attention to these incredible counter movements or counter like design examples like Rizomantica and other kinds of examples like that. You know, my projects are very much community based, but they're supposed to reflect, you know, what, you know, the global village was never supposed to come about at the cost of like local cultural or community voices, you know, and I understand that global conversations are important around certain issues like climate change or human rights. 
but we should never force a certain understanding of development down other people's throats, right? Much like we can't force an idea of what global communication is down other people's throats. If we do that, we completely stifle, flatten, and destroy diversity in its purest form, which is about difference. It was a very cool moment and, and probably never will come back where my book was trending right alongside uh, Thomas Friedman's book. And I was like, dang, this is awesome because this is the opposite of that book, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> good. Yeah. That's good. My one shot, I mean, the, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, and the, the trick is people are arguing that the openness or interactivity, the deep interactivity with local connectivity that we're talking about makes the net and the world more vulnerable to ISIS and evildoers of all <laughs> sorts. But I think it's actually the opposite. It's the yeah. black boxed closeness of the net that makes us incapable of discerning between real news and fake. That's how, yeah. you know, Qatar gets screwed up based on a, on a planted <laughs> story. You know, it's, it's so easy to do that in a world where people are not genuinely participating in a full spectrum way where they have the ability to analyze what's coming at them. And one of the more incredible things about this political moment we live in in the U.S. is how the, the audacity of our president to say things that actually reveal something that's really insightful. When he said on the, on Tucker, Tucker Carlson interviewed him, I remember on Fox news, I think about two months ago. And, you know, and Carlson said, you know, why do you keep attacking the media in the way you do? And, and Trump said, our country is so divided and I only need 130 million people. I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I can reach those people directly through social media. So that is this way to set up, right? And, and, and kind of not only individually, but a kind of culturally or politically atomized space in which we live, these technologies can be tools uh, to support divisiveness and fragmentation. And that's not what we want. We want to come together, but we only want to come together in ways that respect the differences that we have with one another. You know, the, 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 the distinctions, the, and, and even respect those who don't want to come together come to the table, you know? Right. But at the same time, I mean, even respecting the logic of your book, uh, Trump found his tribe. Yep. And it just so happens that these technologies are very well tuned for a person like him to reach people like them. You know? right. That's that's what this is geared toward. It's not geared for the 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 next uh, uh, Nelson Mandela um, to, <laughs> no, to reach a, a new uh, nation of tolerant people. It's, it's not it's not that and and I think it's and it's also like if you look at political machinery and our recent elections and you know Dean 04 Obama 08 you always see that there's the data analytics people there's the uh, kind of media people, right? Like Steve Bannon kind of person, Breitbart, um, the data analytics like Cambridge Analytica, and then the front man. You know, the front man could be like this inspiring, beautiful figure like Obama, or this kind of, you know, like crass and abrasive figure who draws a lot of attention uh, like Trump, right? So mm -hmm. it's, 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 it, you got this kind of like machine where you have data, the back end, the storytelling, and the, and the figurehead, the, the performer, Right. And it's sort of like those are the those are the three things. So I feel like it's a time, you know, I think these issues are very global in their scope, but also just speaking about our country, it's time for us to think about technologies that bring us together in ways that belie this kind of, uh, you know, tribalized manipulation, but actually get into the kind of depth of what tribal 
uh, kinds of formations could look like, which are actually based on communities that know one another, where you can't, you know, you can't manipulate one another because you're actually connected to these people in a deeper way. But we're not connected to one another at all through Facebook. What we are connected to are intentional and algorithmically mediated data trails that are being put out to maximize our the time we spend and are clicking on those sites so that more data can be extracted into more oil for these incredibly powerful companies. Yeah, it's what, you know, guys like Adorno were warning us about yeah. 80 yeah. years ago that it's yeah. all for the oil. It's all for the oil, whether it's records or TV or movies or or now the net. But that's, you know, and I'll let you go. I know you got another interview to do, but oh, thank you. you know, in the end, that's why we need a team. You know, that's why we need a team based on our humanity rather than uh, whatever values are coming coming at us through these fiber optic cables. And I'm I'm and now that we've we've met and spoken for the first time, like I think we're part of each other's teams and we're going to team up in person, which I'm super psyched about to discuss the book and to discuss your amazing work at NYU in just, uh, I think, two months. Excellent. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Well, thank you All for right. being, thank you for having me and, and, you know, thank you for your work, which I've been reading for, I think, almost 20 years. So. Oh, well, thank you for yours. Now I get to pass the torch now. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for being on Team Human. No, my pleasure. Thank you for participating on Team Human. Tell the others, forward to your friends. It's time we do this thing for real. We are entirely listener-supported. You can find out how to get involved, more about our guests, and ways to support the show at teamhuman.fm. Team Human is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 